Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers Eyes Wide Shut in somewhat of a new fashion for this public podcast. It's a conversation with another commentator, Andrew Cook. So we talk about all aspects of Kubrick's final film, and uh, we had this conversation back in 2018, so I'm sure there's some uh, updates since that we could add to it in terms of real-world observations and, and stuff like that. Uh, and if you have any thoughts on any of that, the film itself, connections to things like the Epstein scandal, uh, please let me know. Offer some feedback, and I will read it on the air and engage. I actually have some feedback uh, already on this film, which I'm going to share near the end of this podcast, too. So hang on for that as well. Uh, before we get into the film, just wanted to mention my last episode covered High and Low uh, from a political standpoint, as well as a cinematic one. Uh, that was the last episode of Left of the Movies that will appear on this feed. From now on, that's uh, starting in October. It's going to be its own dedicated feed for that political cinema sub, uh, podcast. And uh, on my site, I put up a post called The Olympic Films Part 1 of 7, uh, summer 2021 broadcast, and then films from 2016, 2012, and 2008 uh, from the Summer Games, and then uh, winter documentaries from 1924, 1928, and 1936, plus some 1932 newsreels. So what that is, is I'm doing an Olympic film series that's going to run from August of this year to February of next year between the two Olympics, one of the shortest, uh, uh, you know, uh, stretches between two Olympic uh, games that we've had since the winter and summer began going in different years. It's usually it's two years between them, but because of the coronavirus delay, there's only like five or six months. So I thought this would be the perfect time to do something I've wanted to do for a while, which is watch the Criterion Collections, uh, presentation of these all these Olympic film documentaries from like over 100 years and uh, I decided the fun way to do it would be to move backwards from the summer since I just watched the most recent summer and forwards to the winter in February so each month I'm watching six or seven I'm writing capsule reviews on my site you can check those out the first round it's really fun to dig into the historical and political context as well as what happened in the games with break, breakout athletes and how the films themselves are made, the evolving style. Uh, I love this idea of kind of going backwards and forwards at the same time in these different seasons. So you can check that out there. Also, uh, for my Mad Men Season 5 viewing diary, came up to Episode 11, The Other Woman, which is uh, an interesting companion piece, I suppose, in some ways to uh, Eyes Wide Shut with its themes of sexual humiliation and jealousy and... Uh, the elite using people in this way. So, uh, you know, if you've seen Mad Men, check out that uh, episode guide as well in in conjunction with this. And on Patreon for dollar a month tiers, I finally uh, released my belated episode that I was hoping would come out last month. It's on uh, Twin Peaks Cinema, The Vanishing. So the Dutch film from 1988, which has many interesting similarities to Twin Peaks. I talked about that one for a good, like, 30 or 40 minutes um, a little longer than usual, that segment, because there was just so much to dig into there. Plus, there's Twin Peaks reflections on the characters of Andrew, uh, John Justice Wheeler, and Josie, uh, the locations of Blue Pine Lodge and Wind River, and connections between the Josie's Intrigue subplot and Part 16 of The Return. Plus, there's some listener and viewer feedback I got, 
and I do an archive reading of my review of Rebecca, the Alfred Hitchcock film, uh, also about a missing woman who kind of haunts the present. So let's jump into Eyes Wide Shut. You've never been jealous about me, have you? No, I haven't. And why haven't you ever been jealous about me? Well, I don't know, Alice. Maybe because you're my wife, and I know you would never be unfaithful to me. You are very, very sure of yourself, aren't you? No. I'm sure of you. Do you think that's funny? you'd like the password if you'd like sir fidelia thank you sir. i don't think you realize the danger you're in now. you've been way out of your depth you've got to get away before it's too late i'm here with andrew cook and we're going to be discussing eyes wide shut stanley kubrick's last film can you describe it all kind of your your involvement with Kubrick's work? It definitely started with 2001. Um, as a kid, I was interested in, I just loved watching the uh, AFI, you know, countdowns. And 2001 was one that caught my interest on there. Uh, so I checked the VHS out from the library. Um, and then The Shining followed from there. So, I mean, even, you know, as a kid, when I had no real basis to really understand his work, I was transfixed by it. It seems like all of his films had that arc where they would, they came out and people didn't quite know what to make. Like, I remember this film was not really all that well-received in 99. Um, some critics really liked it, but a lot of them felt like, well, it's just, it doesn't quite... I remember the biggest complaint I feel like I saw was that it wasn't erotic enough, um, which I don't know that that's really what he was going for. <laughs> I Put it this way, I think the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman scenes are definitely about, like, their sexual relationship, but it seems like a lot of the other stuff, the orgy is really more about, like, power and paranoia and kind of using sex as a means to that end. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think in the beginning it conforms to some of the uh, standard of the genre, you know, of the erotic thriller, but it will eventually subvert it. And by the time it becomes uh, a film about Tom Cruise's character's powerlessness, I would say. How would you summarize the film? Well, to me, Eyes Wide Shut is a journey into a man's self-identity. Tom Cruise's character comes to find himself... He comes to find that whatever power he felt that he had in society or in his relationship is illusory. And the film is essentially his journey into to probing this powerlessness... Uh, and then eventually accepting it, I believe, and hopefully moving towards something healthier. Now, you mentioned that you felt like it subverted some of the tropes of the erotic thriller genre. What do you see those tropes as being, and how do you see it subverting them? The beginning parts of the film really are kind of kind of erotic. Um, I believe you can see it in the way that Kubrick frames uh, Alice, Nicole Kibben's character. She almost is reminiscent of, of classical paintings. Uh, her scenes with the Hungarian man at the party are very kind of erotically charged, even more so, far more so than Tom Cruise's uh, with the two women. Um, but as it goes, it becomes more about, like you said, power and uh, ritual 
um, this, the kind of solemn self-seriousness of our, I would argue, maybe toxic marital paradigms, or at least perhaps Kubrick argues this. Um, and at that point, it stops being, you know, sexy and starts being something as unsettling as it is maybe absurd. Mm-hmm. And what do you see... What, where do you see those turning points where the film starts with Tom Cruise's sort of sense of self-assurance and maybe some of the um, objectification of the Nicole Kidman character and everything? Where do you see those turning points in the film where it starts to become more about his powerlessness? During the scene where they have an argument after Nicole Kidman's character has been, uh, she, you know, she's gotten high. She's working through the fact that she just had an attraction to this man and that she saw her husband. Uh, flirting with other women, and she tells him a story about a time she'd considered infidelity. And this shakes um, Tom Cruise's character. It uh, unmoors his worldview, everything he thought he knew about his wife and about uh, sexual relations, essentially. I noticed that the the big orgy party scene where he goes to this masked, uh, not a ball exactly, but a masked uh, event at this Long Island estate. It happens exactly halfway through the film, which I thought was interesting. So it's sort of structured with that at its center and then the fallout on either side. Um, do you see particular moments within that just narratively during the, the party scene? and But also maybe stylistically or just in the way it's shot? His powerlessness compounds as he now finds himself running against essentially a class of people to which he does not belong we see him moving among the upper class but he, he doesn't quite belong there and he will at this point even start spending massive amounts of money to try to work through the mystery you, you will notice that he's often kind of isolated in these scenes he is cut off and then of course it climaxes with him being surrounded um, so I, th- I think that it's, you know, you can see it both in the, the mise-en-scene and just kind of in the narrative. Yeah, he stands very much aside from this big group of masked men that's in the center of the room and the women. Like, he's kind of off in a corner. And I think Kubrick plays a lot, a lot, a lot with Tom Cruise's height in this film, um, which I'm sure is no accident because Kubrick is known to be... Um, you know, not not the kindest director of actors, and he'll often, I think, exploit their kind of weaknesses or insecurities. And uh, I think he does that a lot with Tom Cruise because Tom Cruise is known to be a little bit uncomfortable with, you know, with his height. And obviously, um, you know, not to get too biographical or anything, but it's like there were obviously rumors of him being gay, and he has the Yale students in the film like yelling at him in the street for like no apparent reason <laughs> whatsoever. Um, and which is interesting too, because that's their, you know, they've got the Yale shirts on, they're kind of Ivy leaguers and it adds to this class element as well, you know, in a weird way, because, you know, they're very casually dressed and he's, he's a little more nicely dressed, but even so they've got this kind of free reign in a way that he doesn't, um, which I think is interesting, but it, you know, they, they have the woman at the party kind of towering over him. He just seems very diminutive. Now, what did this? You said this was your girlfriend's first viewing of Eyes Wide Shut. Like, what did she make of it as like a first impression? Um, she really loved Kubrick's approach to the film. Um, she she tends to like Christmas movies, 
so she really admired the look of the film. Oh, yeah. This is a Christmas movie. <laughs> I just want to say the next time somebody tries to come in with their, like, uh, you know, counterintuitive, aha, Die Hard is the best Christmas movie. You know, this this should be the new Die Hard is the best Christmas movie. She was often embarrassed by Tom Cruise's completely ineffectual kind of macho displays, right? Flashing his medical license like it's a police badge. That made me laugh so hard throughout this movie. Yeah, she really admired the film, and she usually does not like Tom Cruise movies. So that was, you know, a testament, I suppose. Tom Cruise, to me, he's like a Michael Douglas actor in that I find him really effective when he's being either an asshole or under somebody's thumb and panicked and like uncomfortable and insecure. And when he's playing somebody who's like really satisfied with himself and you're supposed to like, he just comes off as like obnoxious to me, which is exactly how I feel about Michael Douglas. Like love him as Gordon Gecko, want to like punch him as the American president, basically. Cruz, I feel, yeah, he's professional enough to carry some blockbuster well enough, like Edge of Tomorrow, but he only really comes alive as if he's slimy, like in this or Collateral or uh, Magnolia. Uh, now, what did you think of Nicole Kidman? Because she, this is a part people love. Like, I feel like they don't give too much praise to Tom Cruise in this film, but she gets a lot of praise for this. And honestly, I find her performance, um, I, I think it does exactly what it's it's supposed to do and everything, but I find it extremely annoying at times. <laughs> Like the way she stretches every single word out and she's like dancing around each line and Kubrick just has her like, it's kind of maddening, which I guess is the point. I did like it, especially in the beginning. It definitely kind of conforms to what you might expect of an erotic thriller. Um, and I did enjoy her her physicality. Really, a lot of the cast had great small bits of physical performance. It has a very interesting supporting cast. Like there's a lot of familiar faces kind of scattered throughout and uh, they just kind of pop in and out of, of Tom Cruise's story. I think Sidney Pollack in particular is like really, really well cast. The scene where he's, you know, in the in the pool room with, with uh, Cruise, I find really effective. Yeah, that's probably my favorite scene in the film as far as acting goes. And I think he brings the best out of Cruise in that scene. From the beginning, you can tell that he's this very slimy, you know, decadent man. I was surprised to find I had totally forgotten that the, and I actually don't feel like they highlight it a ton in the film. There's one line where they underline it, and then it's evident from other clues. But the woman who saves Tom Cruise at the party is the woman that he saved from the overdose at the first party in the film. And I think at one point, and not this time, but a previous time watching it, I expected the, the, the prostitute who has HIV that she was the one that um, saved him, the masked woman. But, of course, it's the woman from the beginning. And um, I thought that was kind of a nice little bring around and sort of a indication that, you know, Tom Cruise is probably one of the few men that this woman ever met. I keep calling them all by their actors' names. <laughs> I don't know why. I can't even remember what his name is in this film. But, uh, you know, the Tom Cruise character, he was probably one of the only people who was just at all halfway decent towards her. So she kind of knows who he is, and it makes total sense then that she would go over towards him and and try to save him because it saved her. So that's actually a nice little bit of almost like classical screenwriting on, on Kubrick's part, in a film that in some ways is more unconventional in this, this sort of episodic story it tells. One thing that I was surprised by is just how modern the film 
feels. Like, it, it was made in 99, but it really speaks to 2018. Um, as I kind of jokingly told my girlfriend, uh, the film is essentially about um, a guy who gets cuffed and then stumbles onto Pizzagate. Something I really like about it is that that decision to set it at Christmas time. Um, it plays into, I think, sort of America's kind of Puritan tradition, um, which I think is something that frames so many of the relationships of the film. Uh, you either get this kind of uh, false intimacy of, of Bill and Alice that uh, she shakes up for him, you know, pretty severely. Uh, and then you get this sort of commodified sense of, of uh, intimacy uh, represented by, you know, the various prostitutes, Domino, um, Lily Sobieski's character, I can't remember her name, and of course the cult. And what I find interesting is you know, for all of the cult's kind of paganistic, uh, hedonistic ennui, they're still kind of a pretty vanilla cult. Like, they still sort of seem driven by that kind of Puritanesque idea. Oh, we have to hide ourselves behind masks. We would, we would th threaten or straight up kill people to protect this secret. Uh, we associate sexuality with these solemn, self-serious rituals. Um, and it, that's that was something I found really interesting, watching the film now for the first time in so many years. I'm actually really glad you brought up the Puritan point because it reminds me of something I almost forgot. Um, and it struck me while I was watching it this time that the film, I think, really plays with the young Goodman Brown kind of uh, template. It's the story of this young Puritan who goes out into the woods in New England one night and he's meeting the devil there and he's very nervous, like, I can't believe I'm transgressing the community, the society by doing this. And yet, but once he's out there, the devil shows him, oh no, everybody in the community is in on this. And then he sees like even his wife at the end is like participating in this satanic ritual. And then like he wakes up the next day and he's not sure if it was a dream, but he's haunted by this for the rest of his life. And they specifically mentioned that he's kind of hesitant to like, you know, he shrinks from like his wife's touch and they're kind of alienated from each other after that because he can't trust her anymore. And I think Eyes Wide Shut takes that kind of allegory and it almost splits the two parts, like the explicit part where it's about the husband distrusting the wife because he discovers that she has her own sexual life outside of him, um, even just an internal sexual life. But then also um, the social aspect is kind of split off. They never really explore this direction, but there are various points where it's very subtly suggested, what if Nicole Kidman was there at the party as well? And what if she's actually a part of this cult? And I think that ties in the two strands of the narrative together because we have this very personal strand, which is his shock at discovering that she even considered infidelity, that she has these fantasies and that she has this life and this kind of desire that he that is outside of him. And then there's this other more social aspect of discovering this hidden externalized world of sexuality tied in with the elite and their, their hidden secret sex parties and things like that. Those two strands are separate, but there are various points where they're pulled together a little bit. One is her dream where she talks about um, having sex with all these different men. And it's almost like she dreamed where he was you know like there is almost kind of a lynchian thing like they're connected that way and um and then another point is when she is on the bed 
and he sees the mask and it's like, how did the mask get there? I think it's interesting that the film keeps those two strands separate, even though there's obviously some sort of almost subconscious connection between them. I'd love to hear people's thoughts on that. What's interesting is uh, to go back to some of the older conspiracies. It it really reminded me of certain things like uh, the Franklin thing or uh, the Dutroux thing. Uh, where ultimately the evidence we get is presented as just, you know, so many loose ends that uh, could be as mundane as it is sinister. What is the Franklin thing? The Franklin thing was a conspiracy of basically the higher-ups in the Republican Party running a a child sex trafficking ring out through Boys Town in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, Dutroux is a somewhat similar thing, except I think it was in the Netherlands. And in all these cases, yeah, like, you know, they never find any other evidence that amounts to anything more than like a loose end, of course. And the people who are investigating it have their authority, you know, challenged, trumped, I guess you could say. Bill's ineffectual investigation into the cult leads nowhere. Uh, What he does find out, uh, you know, could be as mundane as it is sinister going by his conversation with Ziegler at the end. Um, and it, it did remind me of some of those older conspiracies uh, from the 80s and 90s as well. It's very much to the film's credit that it's it's just about, uh, you know, this kind of relatively vanilla sex ring. I mean, I think it's it's a more interesting choice and roots it more into, like I say, that kind of some of the weird assumptions uh, we have about marriage. Um, and, and how human sexuality should be expressed after being married. Um, so it's honestly, to me, one of the most interesting things. Um, and I was curious what you felt about this idea that I had upon watching the film. It almost felt like a sort of spiritual successor in some ways to Barry Lyndon with uh, basically a man having to come to terms with his relative power in a larger culture with essentially the candlelight of Barry Lyndon replaced with Christmas lights here in Eyes Wide Shut. I love that, yeah. Barry Lyndon is my favorite Kubrick film, I think. And uh, these two Kubrick films have my favorite lighting of any Kubrick film. Like, I just think they're both gorgeous to look at. And uh, I think that's totally right. Like, these are two characters who have raised their sort of station in the world. You, You get the sense maybe from where they initially came from. And they're not quite of the upper echelon, and yet they're able to kind of move about and maybe at times assume that they have more of a kind of presence in it than they do. And then they're very much put in their place. And that happens to both of the characters, I think. And of course, one spans many years or even decades, and the other one is, uh, yeah, it's like two two or three days. But yeah, that's a great comparison. I, I love that. This is definitely, I think, maybe the Kubrick film that is most feels most linked to Lynch and they kind of have an interesting relationship in that um, Kubrick proclaimed to George Lucas actually that Eraserhead was his favorite film of all time this is a film it has some of those uncanny moments that feel kind of Lynchian what's interesting to me though is if I was to connect this to one of Lynch's films it would be Mulholland Drive and that actually came out after Eyes Wide Shut and was shot, I want to say, around the same time. But the thing with Eyes Wide Shut was this was a really long production. Like, I actually remember I was, like, um, like I guess 12, 13 or whatever. 
And, you know, I was obsessed with movies already at that point. And I used to read, my mother used to get People magazine. I used to read it all the time. And they would have all these articles about Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman shooting Eyes Wide Shut back in like 1996. And then it would be like a year later and they'd be like, still checking in with uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are still over in London after a year of shooting, still shooting this strange Stanley Kubrick sex film or whatever. Like it was just this thing that was going for years. It overlaps a little with Mulholland Drive, but obviously um, if anything influenced anything, this would have influenced Mulholland Drive because of the chronology. And I like how there are so many interesting bits of performance that are quintessentially lynchy and eyes wide shut. Um, the, the guy looking through the glass at his daughter like he's an insect or Tom Cruise craning his neck to like an inch away from the dead girl. Uh, the physicality of Nicole Kidman. Yeah, I was reminded of Lynch. I don't think Kubrick is as is interested or intent on carving out a fully fleshed kind of dream space. It's more of an uncanny that's just tiptoeing to the edge of that. And it, it doesn't quite go over, you know. Like, for example, I think I think the most uncanny haunting part of the film is when he first enters the mansion and that music is playing. That's like a really effective music choice. It's, I mean, it's very kind of, it's, it's what you would expect. Maybe it's kind of conventional in that sense, but it's still really effective with almost the sort of Gregorian chants or whatever going on, that deep ominous humming and the guy in the red robe and the circle of women kneeling with the masks and the cloaks on. And there's a moment in that which is very uh definitely touches in the same vein as a lot of lynch which is the characters turning and staring at him with the masks yeah directly into the camera yeah that's true yeah it's so unnerving it's creepy despite the absurdity of it all it's it's so creepy that when i watch it it's still scary even after having seen the scene parodied in it's always sunny in philadelphia what is the password You may enter. What the hell is this place? What did you bring me to? This is a buffet. Well, I can see that it's a buffet, but why is there a buffet at a goddamn orgy, Frank? Well, you don't want to bang on an empty stomach, do you? I don't want to bang any of these people anyway. They're all punchy and weird and old. You can't tell under the mask. I can absolutely tell. And why are our costumes so much more elaborate than everybody else's? Like they didn't put any effort into it. Oh, Jesus Christ. That guy's not even wearing a mask. Well, he's got the right idea. This beak is interfering with my knife. What are you Don't take it off. Oh, Jesus. Uh, and then one character we haven't mentioned, I guess maybe would be worth mentioning for a moment, is Nick Nightingale. He's kind of Tom Cruise's key to this world. And what's interesting is he's almost a character whose relationship to the Cruise character is like Cruise's relationship to the Pollock character, where they kind of move in the same circle, but one is kind of doing better and more secure than the other. And... Um, kind of uses them in a moment or, or needs their help in a moment to get some sort of goal. In Pollock's case, he has to help this woman who's overdosed in his, in his house. And then in the other case, Cruz needs the Nightingale character to get him the password. Which, interesting, Linoff, I didn't think about this until you said it. I feel like I've heard people mention it before, but it just kind of slipped my mind until you brought it up, is the password is Fidelio. And of course, the whole film is about infidelity. But Nightingale is interesting in that sense. And also because even the 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 woman, the former Miss New York, who sacrifices herself to Cruz and kind of ends up 
on the margin of the story while we're focused on the marriage and, and, you know, there's the safety of the stars. Even she gets at least that moment where he like leans over her on the slab and you kind of realize this horror of what's happened to her because of him. But Nightingale, we never see him again. And he brushes it off with, Oh, he went back to Seattle, but you have to wonder like, what did happen? Did they kill him? And if they killed him, they probably killed his whole family because they can't, you know, they would wonder what happened to him. Um, I almost kind of think they let him live, which maybe says something about the misogyny of the group as well. Something interesting about Nick Nightingale and really just the whole thing is even if let's take Ziegler at his word and uh, all that was staged because, I mean, there there even was a performative aspect to Mandy's speech at the club. Like, I will redeem him. Let's take Ziegler at his word. Um, yeah, there, there there's still... Um, I mean, obviously, the element of misogyny is, is, you know, still obvious, right? Because, I mean, it's clearly uh, he was, you know, even upset that he had to keep her around for an hour, you know? Yeah, that's true. He wanted her out of there. And, yeah, as far as Nick goes, yeah, I mean, even if they just, but even if they just beat him and sent him on his way, uh, that still speaks to a level of power, a level of things they think they can get away with. Um, Or having Bill followed, uh, which is to me one of the kind of low-key, just a great chase sequence. Yeah, I love that. And the score mirrors it, right? Like they play the same notes with different keys to emulate two different uh, footsteps going down the street. Uh, and it culminates with Cruz buying a newspaper where the headline says, Lucky to be alive. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't too subtle. <laughs> Even if we take Ziggler at his word, uh, they're still quite awful, you know. To an extent, I mean, obviously it has that same kind of uniformity of style that sums up, you know, late Kubrick from 2001 on. Um, And some of the blocking choices definitely reminded me a bit of a Clockwork Orange. uh, But but the best comparison, yeah, I think would be Barry Lyndon. Is there anything else you wanted to share before signing off? All right. Well, like you said, my name is Andrew Cook. Um, I am a writer of little renown, uh, but you can follow me on Twitter at, uh, at master mastermind with no I. Did you come for that name or anything in relation to the mastermind posts on the shining? Actually, that's coincidence. Uh, the name comes from when I put my actual name into the Wu Tang clan name generator. <laughs> As I mentioned throughout this episode, I would love to hear from people on this film. Um, I think this is one of the films that I'm covering that, that has kind of the most to talk about. So please do send your feedback in. And I'd also point people to um, another um, friend who's going to be a guest at some point on the show and was maybe going to come on for this one as well. Uh, Bob Clark, he has a webcomic series which does sort of a riff and a parody of Eyes Wide Shut for a whole sort of story cycle. So I'll link that below as well. The first feedback I want to share on this uh, connects 
the film to Barry Lyndon, another great Kubrick movie, and also views it as somewhat of a, a study of the 90s that comes from within the 90s in an interesting way. This was from Cadesis, which hopefully I'm pronouncing correctly. They gave me a guide to pronunciation on that because I asked. For me, my two favorite Kubrick films are, without question, Barry Lyndon and Eyes Wide Shut. I love them dearly. I first saw it with some cinephile friends back in 2005, and in discussing the film afterwards, I came to the following conclusion. Eyes Wide Shut is, like Barry Lyndon, a period piece. It's a period piece about the 1990s, that just so happens to have been made in the 1990s. The consumerism of the 1990s is unmistakably commented on by having these gorgeously and hauntingly shot Christmas lights in every scene. It's relentless. Kubrick cast the quintessential 1990s Hollywood couple in roles that are utter deconstructions of what they were at that time. The onerological reading of the East Village in Manhattan and the subtle strangeness of its geography over the course of the film, all of these qualities and more give this truly uncanny feeling of a dream that incorporates remixes of the things that seem, to me at least, quintessentially 1990s. Rewatching Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia just makes me pine for what Tom Cruise's career could have been if he had gone down that road more. And then this final piece of feedback here is a long one, digging into different aspects of Eyes Wide Shut, also touches on some connections to Twin Peaks, so fair warning if you've not seen Twin Peaks, some maybe some uh, spoilers in here. So, you know, keep that in mind. Here's what Seven wrote about the Eyes Wide Shut episode way back, uh, I think it was episode 15. Hi, Joel. I'm diving into your Patreon podcast and enjoying what I hear. Like I said in my earlier email, I'm really impressed by your ability to express doubts and reservations while remaining open to other points of view. That's a skill I'm slowly developing myself. Your podcasts keep bringing up questions that I've been eager to discuss with informed cinephiles. And they go on to say, The connection between Twin Peaks and Eyes Wide Shut. Have you ever noticed that the dead sex worker's obituary states that she used to work at the perfume counter? I did not. That's interesting. In episode 15 of your podcast, you point out that Alice's dream and the ritualistic orgy seem connected somehow. To me, this is the secret to understanding the film. I think that it is Alice, Nicole Kidman's character, who speaks to him from behind the mask at the ritualistic orgy. By doing so, she pulls him out of darkness, much as Bill pulled Mandy out of the darkness at the Christmas party. That is why the music playing in the background is, ironically, Strangers in the Night. In general, I think that struggle is at the heart of Eyes Wide Shut, is the, or I think the, the struggle at the heart of Eyes Wide Shut is certitude versus uncertainty. Love is openness, a willing to engage despite uncertainty. Bill's veneer of certitude is shattered by Alice's tale of mental infidelity, and he is too blind to see that Alice's willingness to tell that tale is a sign of her love for him. She's inviting him to drop the facade of a love that is certain, which is what he used to deflect her questions about his own mental infidelities. The agents of lust that Bill encounters afterwards are offering something that is certain, but false. Basically, I see Eyes Wide Shut as a continuation of The Shining. The Shining presents a world of illusion, where ghostly figures are constantly inviting lost and wandering souls to either work for or play with them. Eyes Wide Shut uses the same basic scheme, except that work is taken out of the equation and play is explicitly sexual. It therefore presents repeated variations on the theme of poisoned fruit being offered in the Garden of Eden. The other difference is that, in Eyes Wide Shut, the lost soul can be extracted from illusion by the clarion call of a guardian angel. That makes me think of uh, La Dolce Vita. 
you've likely noticed that I engage in more metaphysically oriented forms of interpretation than you do. It was actually my respect for Lynch and Kubrick that made me take metaphysical questions seriously. I think cinema, by presenting ethereal figures unmoored from the typical passage of time, inherently raises such questions. At the same time, I genuinely appreciate the social sociological questions you raise in your podcasts. That may be sort of a fluctuation, I think. Uh, sometimes I kind of tend more toward a spiritual orientation than others toward a more materialist one, depending where I'm at in my uh, larger outlook. Next time on uh, Lost in the Movies, I'm going to have a double header. It's another unconventional episode. In this case, two films... Uh, by the same director, and this is not only going to be a doubleheader, it's going to be a two-part episode. So the first part will go up next week. It'll be separate reviews of these two films, followed the week after by connections, 10 connections between them that I find really compelling. So you can listen to the audio and see if you recognize it, and then tune in next week to hear my discussion of these. And uh, before we do that, just a reminder... Uh, please do rate, review, and subscribe if you enjoy this podcast. And uh, if you really want to support it, you can become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Uh, that that uh, archive, as I always say, has hundreds of hours of extra material that uh, is not on here. Um, these are often podcasts that I recorded like three years ago that I'm re-releasing for the public. Uh, in you know, you can hear everything I've recorded since then uh, on these uh, podcasts and often more than just the film reviews too. I'm digging into Twin Peaks subjects. I'm sharing listener feedback. I am sharing thoughts on politics, podcast recommendations and all that. So just wanted to jump in and say, uh, remember to check that out if you're interested. Okay, on to the uh, teaser for next week's episode. You have a new role to play, I hear. Up for a role. No, no. I definitely have that you have it. They tell me uh, that there's this all-pervading happiness underneath everything, and the more time I spend with them, the more I believe it. Mm -hmm.